Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you've had a good week so far. Um, it's great to have you here watching this on uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And particularly if this is your first time uh, either watching us uh, on YouTube or you're, maybe you've never even been along to Liberty Church or any church before, then we're really glad that you're watching this. Uh, and if you have any questions at all, then uh, feel free, you can leave a, a comment on YouTube or on one of our uh, social media channels and we'll try and get back to you if we can. Uh, my daughters have been telling me as well that if I want to become a pro YouTuber, then I need to get you all to, I need to point to the right bit of the screen and get you all to click the subscribe button on our channel and then you can get all your videos, all our videos coming straight to you. So, okay, maybe if you uh, are watching this at home or maybe you're on a Zoom call with all your community group, then you could grab yourself a coffee and a croissant and we'll get into this together. Joe uh, earlier on read out the Apostles' Creed, which we've been working through uh, week by week. And we're on to the next line today, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage from the end of the Gospel of John uh, to help us to understand this. And that's John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 to 29. So maybe you'll just want to grab your, your Bible and look that up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, then there are loads of different apps which you can download uh, and get the Bible right onto your phone. Uh, so if you want to find uh, John 20, chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. Um, and if you just, wherever you are at home with your family, some friends, if you just want to read that together and then pray, uh, and then we can come back together. So why don't you just press pause on your video now. Okay, welcome back. Um, you may have noticed before we went into uh, lockdown here in Amsterdam, or you might have even seen it when you've been cycling through the city recently, that if you go past the Rijksmuseum, uh, on the side of it, you'll see a massive, or two massive posters, big banners advertising uh, the latest uh, exhibition uh, that's been taking place in the Rijksmuseum, which is obviously closed at the moment. But one of them, one of these huge banners, is a, is a picture of a painting um, uh, called Christ Displaying His Wounds by Giovanni Antonio Galli. Uh, it's quite a famous painting. And in that picture, you can see, um, as the name describes, you can see Christ, Jesus Christ, displaying his wounds, which he received on the cross. So you can see the nail marks in his hand. And you can see he's particularly, he's pointing to the wound in his side, which he actually talks about that in John 19, where the, uh, the Roman soldiers, uh, they went to uh, look at the bodies of Jesus and the two men who were crucified with him to see if they were dead already. And normally what they would do at a crucifixion, if, if the, the person hadn't died yet, they would come and break their legs because the, uh, the subject would be supporting their body while they're on the cross and they'd be using their, their legs with a nail through their ankles and they'd be pushing up on their ankles so that they could breathe. If you broke their legs, then they would basically suffocate to death. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered that he was already 
He's, he was already dead. Uh, and they stuck a spear, a six foot long, uh, one and a half meter long spear into his side, which probably would have gone right up into his heart and punctured it and blood and water came out. And in this painting, he's pointing uh, to this wound and it's, uh, it's very uh, uh, clearly painted and you, you feel like when you're looking at the painting that you can see right into the, the wound. It's, it's uh, almost a bit uh, horrific to look at. But actually what's the most striking thing about this painting is not actually Jesus' wounds, but it's that Jesus is, he's looking right at you. Um, and Jesus doesn't, he looks perhaps a bit too European and not quite uh, uh, Middle Eastern enough. Uh, but anyway, he, you can see Jesus looking at you. Uh, lots of artists will do that in painting. So the, the Mona Lisa is a famous example of a painting where it doesn't matter where you are in the room, in the gallery, you always feel like the painting is looking right at you. And this is one of those paintings where, where Jesus grabs hold of your, of your gaze and his face confronts us. And I was cycling past it recently and thought it was quite striking that Jesus is on the side of the Rijksmuseum and he's looking out into the heart of our city and his gaze is fixed on the city and he's almost trying to grab the attention of the city as he gazes intently towards us. And in a time of trial and difficulty, this season that we're going through with this virus, it does feel like Jesus is trying to get our attention. He's trying to get your attention. Maybe you've never even considered Jesus before. Well, he's trying to get your attention. And the painting that's, uh, what the painting is referencing is this story which you've just read in John chapter 20, where in the story, Jesus is, he's doing the same thing. He's confronting, not us, but he's confronting Thomas. And uh, because Thomas uh, had already uh, uh, met with the disciples and they said they'd seen Jesus and he hadn't believed them and he wanted to see the wounds for himself. And this painting is depicting that moment where Jesus comes to Thomas and points out his wounds to him. But what Thomas has been struggling with is, is doubt. He's famously known as Doubting Thomas. And doubt is a, a powerful emotion. And it's emotion which is, I guess the best way to describe it would be a, a feeling of uncertainty, uh, a deep feeling of uncertainty. And we live in very uncertain times. We can't predict what's going to happen um, next week, next month, in the summer, when life will be back to normal, we can't predict that. Everything feels very uncertain. And that can lead to, to doubt springing up within us. And there are lots of things that will trigger doubt, that feeling of uncertainty. So when we walk through seasons of suffering or disappointments, we can find that can lead to doubt. We can in, doubt in other people. When someone lets us down, we... We lose our trust in them. We doubt whether they're going to be able to love us in the way we would like them to, whether they're going to be able to do the things that we need them to do for us. We doubt them. 
And perhaps in this season, maybe you found yourself even doubting God, doubting the character of God, the goodness of God, because you're walking through a season of difficulty, of confusion, of uncertainty. So it leaves you to question his goodness. Maybe you're even questioning God's existence altogether. You're doubting whether he even exists at all. And what we find at at Easter on this Resurrection Sunday, that in a time, in an age of great doubt all around us, we can have hope as followers of Jesus. And that's not a, a hope that life gets back to normal again. It's a hope that is much stronger than that. It's not a vain hope based on, on some perhapses and some maybes. But it's a sure and certain hope where doubt is uncertainty. Hope, at least the hope we find in Jesus Christ and in his word, that hope is certain. It's true. We can rely on it. We can trust it. And it's a hope that leads us to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's a hope that leads us to be able to read that creed. And it makes our hearts sing with joy as we read it, when we recognize the the wonder of who Jesus is and who our God is. And for those of you who are watching this who are doubting, in lots of different ways you might be doubting, the, the answer to doubt is actually to look at the question and try and answer the question of who is Jesus? Because the bulk of this Apostles' Creed that we've been going through, you might have noticed when Joe read it out to us earlier, the, the main chunk of the creed is, is actually all about who Jesus is and what he's like. And the creed a- attempts to map out for us to try and answer that question of who is Jesus? And why does it focus so much on the person of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's because it's the most important question that you'll ever wrestle with. It is the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus? And it's the question that Jesus even asked his disciples. You can read about it in in all of the Gospels, but particularly in Mark chapter 8, Jesus confronts his disciples and says, who do you say I am? And that's the same question that we have to answer. Who do we say that Jesus is? And it's the question that Jesus is looking out onto our city and asking. He's saying to Amsterdam, he's saying to you, who do you say I am? And we're not going to be able to answer that whole question today of who Jesus is over the coming weeks. We're going to explore that a little bit more. But in that passage that we read earlier, Thomas gives us a really wonderful, insightful answer. Although Thomas is often known as Doubting Thomas, actually his response to Jesus is actually one of the most profound and wonderful parts of the whole of the Bible. Because his answer is, my Lord and my God. He recognizes Jesus' wonderful, powerful divinity. 
He recognises the wonderful uh, 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 divine nature of who Jesus Christ is. Because one of the most popular uh, misbeliefs, misconceptions around Jesus is that he was just, you know, a good guy, a nice man, maybe a prophet, maybe. Um, but he was really just one of those heroes that we find in history. When you think of people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Mother Teresa, that Jesus is just someone we could put in that category of an inspiring human being. You know, someone who lived for a cause, who was committed to something, a charismatic character, even someone who, who died for what he believed. There's lots of people in history that have had that happen to them. But yet, that doesn't fit with what people all throughout history have actually believed about Jesus. Because if we read the Apostles' Creed, which is this fundamental statement of belief that Christians have held to for centuries and centuries and centuries, it doesn't say that Jesus uh, was just a mere man. It doesn't put him just in that category. It says much more about who Jesus is. And it doesn't fit, this caricature of Jesus doesn't fit with what his closest friends thought of him. When we read in the, in the Bible, in the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we get to see what his friends thought of him. We get to see Thomas who would have known him very closely and intimately, that when Thomas is confronted of the question of who is Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. And when Peter is, when Jesus asks the question to Peter of who do you say I am, he says, you are the Christ. That word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. It's an incredibly powerful term. Even the name Jesus means saviour. He's this saving Messiah that's come to rescue his people. Jesus Christ, it's not, it's not like his first name and his surname. It's uh, recognising the wonderful character that's in Jesus, his wonderful nature, that he has come to save his people from their sins. That he's come to be this victorious, anointed king and Messiah to rescue his people. And this also doesn't, this caricature that we can find of Jesus, because sometimes people will say, well, that's what Christians have, have added on all this to Jesus. You know, he was just a, a good, ordinary guy. And Christians, even his, his disciples have, have uh, made this elaborate story to make him something that he wasn't. But actually, if we read about what Jesus said about himself, we say that Jesus says that, in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Later, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. If you read all these claims, they're not the claims that an ordinary person would make about themselves. No one else would say, I'm the resurrection and the life, that it wouldn't mean anything. It would be a grandiose claim. And yet Jesus claims all these things for himself because he is our Lord and our King. He is our Saviour, our Messiah that's come. Jesus believed himself to be fully God, one with the Father. And that's 
the king that Thomas declares in his response to Jesus. But the Bible, alongside claiming that Jesus was fully God, also claims that he was, he was fully human. It says in, in the book of Hebrews that he was made like us in every respect. Even the book of John, right at the start, starts by saying that the word became flesh, that God became like one of us. He took on human flesh, human body. He, he looked like us. He had to trim his nails. He had to shave his beard and cut his hair. He had blood in his body, saliva in his mouth. He was just like one of us. And this divine God, this divine majesty, took on human frailty. And we're going to look at that more in coming weeks. This is what theologians would call the incarnation. We're going to explore that in a few weeks to come. But it's important that we recognise that this person that Thomas is confronted with isn't like a ghost or a spirit being, some kind of mystical God, but is a man. That Jesus standing in front of Thomas shows him his, his wounds, the suffering that he endured as a human, shows him the scars that are on his body. And these two things, on one hand, that Jesus is fully God, full of divine majesty, at the same time fully human, just like one of us, these are the two great pillars of what we believe about our God. That he's divine and human, that he's God and man. And why does this answer the question of doubt that you might be having? Why is this the most important question we could come to answer? Well, see, Thomas's doubt was immediately answered when he realises that this man standing before him, the one who he saw now to a cross, the one who died, has now been resurrected, that he's risen again. And he's realised that everything that Jesus has claimed about himself, all these things he'd said to his disciples, which they'd got been confused about and not understood, he suddenly realised it was all true, that Jesus was alive, that he'd defeated death, that he'd taken their sins, our sins upon himself. He won a great victory for us. And when we consider God the man, we realise that we have a wonderful saviour. It says in Isaiah 53 that by his wounds, those wounds he was displaying to Thomas, those wounds that are displayed for a whole city to see at the moment, by his wounds we are healed, it says in Isaiah. It talks in Revelation about how there is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That Jesus even now is in human flesh in heaven, bearing his wounds. He's been slain for us, but has risen again. See, God came as a man, as a human, just like us, to rescue humanity. He entered fully into human flesh to rescue us from it. That Jesus came to unite the divine nature with the human nature in his own body so that we now could have our own union with God. That we as fleshly human beings full of frailty and weakness now in Jesus Christ find a wonderful 
union with this majestic, powerful God. It says in 1 Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He stood in the gap for us to open up a way for us to come to the Father. He bore all of our doubt, all of our unbelief, our lack of trust, all of our guilt and sin and shame. He took all of that upon himself. And he bore the penalty, the wrath of God for those things so that we might go wonderfully free. And we know now that when doubt arises in your heart, maybe you've been having some doubts recently about the goodness of God, whether he's really as faithful as you believed as he, he was, whether he even exists at all. When you're struggling with doubt, you know, you can trust the character of God because he sent Jesus to die for you. Even when you were set against him, even when you were still his opponent, even when we still sin against God, we've rebelled and gone our own way, God still sent his son to pay the price for us. He gave his son for your hardened heart to set you free. What a wonderful hope that is. On this Easter Sunday, we can know such a wonderful hope that Jesus has come for us. On the tip of Southern Africa, there's uh, famously uh, what's called the Cape of Good Hope. But it's not always been known as that. It used to be known as the Cape of Storms. Because for many, many years, people tried to sail around it. Uh, Europeans who were trying to make passage to India to buy goods. And they would sail down from Europe and around Africa and then back up to India. But when they tried to go around the tip of Africa, they would often get uh, shipwrecked in storms. And it was a formidable, fearful place. And then in 1497, a Portuguese ship captained by Vasco da Gama uh, set off on a voyage. I think it was the longest, up until that point, the longest ship voyage they'd ever been without stopping. And they sailed all the way around the Cape, down Africa, back up to India for the first time. And after that, they renamed it the Cape of Good Hope. But he'd sailed through the storms. And now they said, now we're going to rename it. It's the Cape of Good Hope. And that's a, a little example of the wonderful cosmic miracle that's taken place for us. That one man, Jesus Christ, endured all the storms to bring us hope. To open up hope for all of us. See, as well as having this Jesus, this man who's come to rescue us, to take all our weakness upon himself, to release us from this sin that so easily entangles us. We also, alongside having a saviour, we have a risen Lord Jesus. Let me read a short passage from Colossians. It says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things who were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased as well. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus is a, a wonderful, preeminent, powerful saviour. The one that existed with the Father since the beginning of time and is now ruling in heaven over his creation, seated at the right hand of his Father. See, the correct response for the Christian is to be a follower of Jesus is not just saying that he's a good example, he's a, a role model of how to live a healthy life, an example of wellness, of doing life well. It's not that we've grasped him, but it's actually that Jesus has laid hold of us. It says in 1 Corinthians that he's brought us with a, a price, that he paid a price for you to redeem you, that is to, to buy you into his family, into his kingdom. And perhaps what God might be doing in this season is asking you the question, not only of who is Jesus, but who is the Lord of whom? Because often we can treat Jesus as though actually we're in charge, that we're sitting on the throne and we're telling Jesus the problems we'd like him to solve, the things we'd like him to fix, the finance we'd like him to give us, the doors we'd like him to open, the jobs we'd like him to provide for us. And yet actually we've got it the wrong way around. And maybe that's the big shift that's happening in your life at the moment through this season that we're all going through. I think Jesus is he's fixing his gaze upon us. And he's drawing us back to recognize who's really in charge, who's really brought us with a price. And by his grace has added us into his family, into his kingdom, so that we can honor him and serve him and obey him now. See, because Jesus, staring out into our city, he's not asking us to feel pity for him as he displays his wounds. We see his wounds and we know that through them we're healed and that he's paid a price for us. And he's fixing his gaze on us because he wants to call us home, back into deep relationship and hope with him. And if he truly is on his throne, if he really is the resurrected king, which he is, then we can have great hope this Easter great hope that he's in charge of our life he's holding he's upholding all things he's in charge of everything that's happening and most wonderfully he's in charge of our salvation by his grace he's won us to him because of his great love for us and that today wherever you are wherever you're watching this you can worship Jesus you can come to the father and worship him in, in spirit and in truth you can come to him 
knowing that you've been washed clean by his blood. He paid a price for you to win you by his grace and add you into his family. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible love for us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you the reality of who you are brings us great hope. And we want to press on with our weeks and days ahead, having that wonderful certainty of hope where we could be so tempted into the uncertainty of doubt. We want to trust in the certainty of the hope we have in you, Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make that hope come alive in our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.